Hello and welcome to the Campaign Podcast, where we talk about advertising, media and marketing. But strangely, we don't have ads ourselves. Um, I am back. It's Omar Oaks, Campaign's media and technology editor, back to hosting duties after some time away, doing interesting things, I can tell you. Uh, A little later, we'll be hearing from a panel talk from our campaign, Virtual Media 360, uh, this year, uh, where brands like Just Eat, Bacardi and Patagonia discuss creative brand reactions to the COVID-19 crisis. But first, with me on this first of our September episodes is Jeremy Lee, Campaign's premium content editor, to discuss this week's news and recent ads. Hello, Jeremy. How the devil are you? Hello, Omar. I'm very good. Welcome back to your to your rightful position in the in the in the chair. It's good to see you. Well, I don't I don't know about rightful. There was some some characters doing a very good job um, while I was away hosting the pod. Some very interesting episodes, including one for yourself, Jeremy. I enjoyed the bullying episode. That was that was tasty. Yeah, it was an important subject. As, as I said, I think it's something we need to be on top of. And I know it's a bit more serious than some of the ones we've normally done, but I think uh, it was no, it was it was the right time to do it, and it was we've got a powerful response for it. So thank you very much to Sue and Shilpin again for contributing to that. Mm. Uh, and so your job role has changed. And um, tell me, what's a premium content editor? Well, basically, Omar, I edit premium content. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> now, what it is, it's a it's a new platform that Campaign's launching um, in October called Campaign Advertising Intelligence, which comprises a whole lot of exciting new um, reports and forecasts and analytics. Uh, and I'm running that with Maria, who uh, Maria, you, who we both know very well. And um, yeah, so it's sort of kicked in in the past sort of couple of weeks, and I've been busy working on that. And I gather you too have a new job as well. Actually, you gave it away in your intro. I did. I did. I, I am now not just a feeble technology editor, but like Super Mario, I have augmented my powers and I'm now media and technology editor, uh, which is which is incredibly um, uh, exciting. Um, it's something which uh, between you and I and everyone listening, I, re- I really wanted. Um, so I'm really happy to get the role. And, you know, frankly, in this day and age, I was covering so much media within ad tech. It just made sense, really. Um, That's exactly it. It makes complete sense with the conversion between media and technology to be sort of under one one remit. So, are we looking forward to seeing a column from you in the future in the in the, the monthly magazine, which is back next week, I believe. I believe so. I think um, I've I've come back uh, just um, a couple of weeks ago, so it's a little bit too late um, to sort out stuff for the current magazine. But definitely in future editions, um, I'll endeavour to um, have a have an opinion or two. I think there's a lot going on. And if you haven't got an opinion on what's going on, I think you're not really paying attention. <laughs> Greg, get your sunglasses on. We've got a vacancy. Oh, is it? I, don't, I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about um, our first piece of news uh, from the last week. Um, Now, WPP's chief executive, Mark Reed, caused quite a stir. He was accused of ageism uh, after comments in a WPP investor meeting, which led to a big debate on the topic. just if anyone hasn't heard, he was asked by an analyst if WPP has the right balance of people with skills in TV versus digital. Reed said, quote, I'm not going to do an impression, but this is just a quote. Uh, we have a very broad range of skills. And if you look at our people, the average age of someone who works at WPP is less than 30. They don't hark back to the 1980s, luckily. 
<laughs> uh, as you might expect, that caused some anger and discussion on social media. Uh, the venerable Cindy Gallup posted a tweet with a link to our article about it on campaign. She said, why have I been fighting ageism in advertising for decades? Uh, linking to Reed's quote and um, Dave Trott, our regular columnist, uh, he said, if you were a client over 30 years old, how would you feel about the COWP saying anyone over 30 is crap? So what do you make of this, Jeremy? Uh, is, it, is it ageism? Is it clumsiness? Is it somewhere between the two? What's going on? I think uh, Mark Reed was, uh, when he was asked off the cuff, he responded. I don't think he engaged his brain when he opened his mouth because he's an intelligent man and would know that making a statement like that, that anyone who is uh, over the age of 30 is you're unlucky to have them is is quite offensive so um i think it was clumsiness does that mean that there isn't a problem ageism in the industry no it doesn't there is a problem so perhaps subconsciously it's that sort of you know we've written about how the industry sort of worships on the altar of youth and i think that's that's still a problem um so yeah it was a very mistimed misjudged comment but i don't think he was malicious when he said it so mark reads uh, doesn't hate old people. We, we're concluding that. Well, one 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 old person. I think he might hate. But, um... <laughs> uh, we we may get onto that in a in a. You may, yeah. Um, does uh, what? Why this obsession with you, Jeremy, in Adlands? I mean, young people. You know, they go around spreading coronavirus with wanton abandon, according to the news. Um, they don't have any money because they can't get a job. Uh, they're not. You know, they can't be spending that money on um, goods and services. Why is Adland so obsessed with youth? I think in terms of employment, they don't have much money because I mean, because the advertising industry doesn't pay them very much. They're cheaper than getting uh, older people generally, like, it, 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 as a, a generalisation. So they're more attractive to employers because they can get people <laughs> to do the job. They're probably, well, they, they may work harder, but they'll do it for less money. Um, that's one of the appeals. But I also think it's that thing that's, and I think we, we wrote about it as well, saying that, you know, you need young people to transform business, which is clearly errant nonsense. You know, the whole fact of, oh, you need energetic young people, that that sort of belies the fact that people who are older and more experienced don't have energy as well. So it's it's that it's the language, it's the nuance of language that advertising uses that sort of um, you know, it's it is that is ageist, I think. Mm, it, it is really interesting. Um, just on the, the point about um, maybe he was um, doing something subconsciously rather than intentionally, I think actually um, one of the people who hit the nail on the head was Cheryl Calverley, uh, former marketer, who's now chief executive actually of Eve Sleep, the mattress brand. Uh, she tweeted, Adlan should be more forgiving uh, about Reed, and she said it was a badly worded response to an analyst question. Well, I think that's correct because clearly, you know, he was hired a couple of years ago now with a mandate to turn the business around, right? And when you're thinking about this constant tag of people like Scott Galloway constantly shitting on the industry and saying that it's full of people who don't know what they're talking about, I think in Galloway's last podcast, um, which I listened to and is great, by the way, but he does shit on the advertising industry. You described people in Adland as kind of wearing berets and smoking clothes, uh, which I think is a Bob Greenberg. <laughs> berets? Yeah. Christ. She's wearing a beret since Frank Spencer. Uh, yeah, well, Bob Greenberg, among others, used to wear them. You know, Reed was hired with a mandate to turn the business around. And so you want to, when you're talking to analysts about the business, you want to create this impression that WP is forward thinking. And it's, you know, the thing about the 1980s, you know, he wants to eschew this perception that it's all madmen, cigar smoking people running around um, drunk all the time. Uh, am, I, am I being too forgiving on Reed, or what do you think? 
No, I, th- I think yeah, you're right, but I think it, it, it became a reductive point when he made it to people under the age of, of, of under and over the age of 30. I mean, I think he's absolutely right to try and distance. I mean, who wouldn't want to distance? Everyone's realised that the industry isn't about making TV ads on its own anymore. But why reduce it to the fact how people, how old people are? So I just think it was really, really clumsy. You can understand why people are upset about it. Um, and there probably is a problem. And I think if you look at the sort of spate of redundancies, that have happened across the industry and including within our own company, it's not been the younger people who have been made redundant, it's been the older people. So I think there is a disproportionate uh, tendency to get rid of or dispose of old people um, because they're seen as obsolete and that's inherently wrong. Indeed. I mean, do you, do you think that the industry is at least is walking the walk as much as this talk in terms of harnessing new ideas as it tries to reinvent itself or is it really still in the virtue signaling stage it's probably emerging from the virtue signaling stage but the fact that it thinks the only place it can seize new ideas is from people who are under 30 is is banal in my view yes there is value new people but they don't have to be you know under or about a certain age for them to be able to come up with any ideas. And that's, you know, that's, pay, that's patent nonsense. And I think, you know, perhaps us as an industry, us as a, a publication might um, be responsible in some way for, I mean, it's, we're right to celebrate new talent, absolutely. But things like 30 under 30, I've always felt slightly uncomfortable with, you know, having awards that are defined by an age group. You wouldn't do it for any other uh, demographic. So those things, I think perhaps, might not be that helpful and you know why don't we celebrate 50 over 50 or something like that i don't know it seems reductive is my is the point i'm making um i have a confession to make actually jeremy today's my birthday oh mate how old are you uh do i do i have to answer that i'll answer it i'm 36 so i'm oh god you're a youngster well well am i some some people listening i think oh he's getting on a bit what does he know he shouldn't be talking about youth <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny age i'm not sure whether i'm young or old well, I've got, I've got a confession. I'm, I'm 50 next year, so I, I'm, I will, at that point, slip into the 6% of the advertising industry over the age of 50. That's if I'm still here. Oh, we'll throw a special party for you if, <laughs> if we're ever allowed to see each other again. Oh, I was going to say, if I lost that long, so I'm glad you didn't go down that line. <laughs> um, speaking of elder states people... Elder states people. So Martin Sorrell is in the news, often is. Uh, if anyone hasn't read it, you really should. Uh, he was interviewed in last week's Sunday Times, uh, where he continued to attack uh, his successor, uh, WBB Mark Reed, uh, for old Mark Reed, and particularly his comments on people over 30. He also criticised the holding company's performance, which is, uh, I think, a lot of people think is becoming like a bit of a broken record. Um, there's a really, I mean, this is a cracking interview because it, it kind of lays out there what he was accused of doing, which is why he ended up resigning from WPP, in that he was basically um, accused of go- someone had seen him walk into a brothel in Shepherd Market, the red light district in Mayfair, and he'd paid for a prostitute using WPP's funds. Now, the story says, and we should say that there's been an investigation, no evidence was found that Sorrel misused company funds. Um, the, the, the business editor of the Sunday Times, Oliver Shah, asked, has Martin Sorrell ever been to Shepherd Market? Yes, I've been to Shepherd Market. Has he ever knocked on door 50A, the alleged address of the brothel? <laughs> Sorrell, I'm not going to comment on that. Um, so there's loads, there's loads of good bits in this interview. Um, interestingly, it ends really nicely as well. Um, 
Shah asks Sorrel why if he's so negative on WP, does he keep his 2% stake in it? Uh, and he says, well, selling, you know, it's a philosophical thing. It's an abrogation of responsibility. I don't just sell and move on. Maybe it goes back to my dad. Uh, so, uh, so lots in there. Um, is this just Sorrel saying it? You know, he's got this new business successful capital. It's a, it's a new business, digitally focused. Is, is the, Do you think it's personal for Sorrel? Do you think he's doing it just for you know, to business advantage or what's going on? Oh, it's a hundred percent personal. He, he, I mean, other than the stuff about his private life and um, well, the, the sort of the non-answers about Shepherd's Market, uh, the stuff that he was trotting out was what he's been trotting out ever since he left, left WBP about how it should be broken and how it's doing really badly. I thought the comment about, you know, he made about Mark, Mark Reed's ill-advised words about the over 30s. I mean, they were clearly self-referential, weren't they? I think Sorrell's, I mean, in his, mid 70s and I, I'm very grateful in some ways you put me in the same bracket as Martin Soros an old statesman I think he's um, a bit more of a grey beard than me but I think um, yeah I mean I'm, I'm, I'm surprised I think without the um, without the comments about Shepherd's Market it would have been exactly the same interview we read six months ago 12 months ago um, and also the issue of the expense I don't know if you saw in the, in the Mark Reed uh, WPP results last week that he said that his expenses had only been 48 pounds um, yes. Over the past over the past six months, or whatever it was, and I gather that um, that was for subscriptions to Financial Times, so nothing juicy at Shepherd's Market. Although I don't know what the price list is there, to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, so, someone should find out. No, they shouldn't. Um, yeah. So that so so that's all. Uh, and, and for more on that, please, listeners, do refer to um, our previous podcast episode with David Jones. We talk a lot about, you know, I you know, I tried to put David on the spot about, you know, you were running Havas for years and, you know, you, you had the chance to turn around a, a comparatively legacy company. Why didn't you do it? And there's lots, there's lots of interesting um, chat in there about the difficulties of talk, turning around a legacy business um, versus starting a new company and doing things from scratch. So please do refer to that. Sorry, sorry I was just going to interrupt. One other thing that I found interesting in the um, in the Sorrel interview was that there were some sort of tantalising revelations about his about his private life, his personal life. So he goes for walk in Hyde Park and he's been the whole day with his strange wife. But also we discovered that he's got a, a dog called Ferris. Um, a red setter. Now I am. Um, I don't know whether he's a big Ferris Bueller or John Hughes fan, but I'm. It's just something amusing. I thought it was an unlikely, an unlikely name for a. Um, well, he's an unlikely fan of the genre, but although perhaps Ferris is named after the metal rather than the character. But anyway, it was just maybe Ferris lives with his grey swans in an upturned bath in his garden. Uh, what what a majestic sight uh, to, to to finish off that story with. <laughs> uh, I just before we wrap up the news, I just want to quickly quickly uh, talk about this Dettol ad that everyone's been talking about. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's an outdoor ad. Uh, I think they had on the tube and other places. Uh, big backlash. Um, it's kind of this this long kind of like. I guess if I'm being mean, I'd say it's kind of rambling copy um, where it details aspects of office life that the public may be missing uh, while working at home, which includes putting on a tie. People still do that. The bosses, jokes nope. and proper bangs. Um, oh, I didn't brilliant. actually, I, to be honest, I didn't think this ad was that bad. I thought the idea behind the ad was, you know, solid enough strategically, but the copywriting is so lame. I can't believe this actually, you know, was came from an agency. It was like, it was, done in house it's so poor i mean you're loving your second family i mean who calls their work colleagues their second family much as i 
adore and respect everyone I work with, though you're certainly not my second family. And things like, you know, uh, bosses' bands. Um, well, I, I, I don't remember, don't remember that ever happening. But and I'd, I'd cringe if it ever did. So I just thought it was a really lame example. Well, a really, a, no, actually, a really good example of poor copywriting. A really lame example of good copywriting. Should never have gone up. But I think that you know the premise behind Dettel being able to protect your services is, you know, that's a pretty valid and coherent one. But this was terribly executed. Your views, you said you didn't find it as offensive as the rest of us. Yeah, I think, I think offensive, I mean, I think if you're, if you're, if you're offended by something like this, then you live a pretty charmed existence. Um, you know, uh, I was, I was lit. Or did you think it was crap? I, I, I thought it was, um, I know it's a tube ad and there's this trend of kind of over putting, you know, quote unquote, too much copy in a tube ad. Cause you know, people are standing there and it's kind of, it's it's different and you've got a, a sort of captive audience um but i think when it's something like Dettol, i think you know when it's such a kind of ubiquitous brand you know it's a verb i'm going to Dettol something you don't you don't kind of need to do it and you know unless you unless you're going for any publicity is good publicity sort of thing i just think that it, it's sort of you're 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 doing too much is how I would say it. And I think, frankly, they've been caught in the crosshairs of people being angry at the government for aggressively encouraging people back into the office. And I think if that, if it hadn't been for that, maybe people wouldn't be talking about it so much, but you know, it's a counterfactual, we won't, we won't know. I think you're probably right. I think um, David Abbott will probably be speaking in his grave if he ever saw the copy on that anyway. We are unfortunately not around to ask. Uh, right, uh, let, let's have a break. Um, we, what we're gonna do, Jez, um, we're going to throw to one of our panels from Campaign 360. Uh, this panel discussion is called Creative Brand Reactions to the COVID Crisis. Uh, the voice you'll hear, first of all, is John Harrington, who's UK editor of PR Week. And we're going to hear how brands have been creatively differentiating themselves during this COVID-19 crisis. Uh, so hang tight and we'll be back to talk about some more ads. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to this next session of our creative brand reactions to the crisis. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome a fantastic set of, of panellists today. We have Lisa Jadan, Vice President of Global Brand Communications at Picardi, Raoul Shah, CEO and founder of Exposure, Ben Carter, Global Director of Restaurant and Strategic Partnerships at Just Eat, and Alex Weller, Marketing Director at Europe at Patagonia. Welcome to you all. I want to uh, start with looking back to the early days, really, of the crisis um, and ask the question, what are the most challenging immediate things you had to deal with in creative brand comms when the crisis first hit? Who would like to jump in on that? Lisa Jadan? I'll give it a go. I think actually the most challenging thing in the early days was, if you were a brand, was how to respond. I mean, everybody wants to react right away. But sometimes I think that the best communications comes from the best listening. Our CMO, John Burke, had come up with kind of this four-stage process to help us manage through it. And the four stages were um, react, confinement, emergence, and freedom. And that's how we've been managing COVID, you know, throughout this period and, and looks like for a little bit longer. 
Like not every brand had a role or a right to be there in the early days. And, you know, if you know who you are as a brand, if you know what your tone of voice is, then you would find that, that place. And like for us, for example, it made more sense for some of the Bacardi brands um, like Grey Goose or Bacardi Rum to be there during confinement. When, when people were looking for those um, ways to help relieve the monotony of, of lockdown, you know, we were there with things to help them work through that period. So I don't know, to give you an example, um, Bombay Sapphire has a campaign, a platform called Stir Creativity, and we pivoted that to something called Create From Home. And we had partnerships with the Saatchi Gallery or Skillshare, and people could go on that. You know, we saw a lot of crafting, a lot of DIYing happen in those early days of COVID. Um, so there was an example of, you know, something we did. If you weren't going to be authentic to who you were as, as a brand or as a company, then you were going to waste a lot of time and a lot of money on messages that people just weren't going to believe. Ben Carter, do you have any thoughts given what's been happening in the last few months? Um, I think Lisa's absolutely right. I think brands really struggle to, to think about do we communicate and what do we communicate? Um, Justy is obviously the largest food delivery uh, online ordering platform in the UK. And we have different audiences. We have a restaurant audience, um, over 35,000 restaurants in the UK, as well as obviously customers. And, and, and our balance was uh, the government advice obviously went from, uh, right, you can't dine in in restaurants anymore. You can order takeaway. And clearly, as the weeks of lockdown wore on, you had two options to either cook or order food. Um, so we had to um, really land messages with our restaurants that it was okay to stay open. We had to land public health messages around social distancing and health and hygiene measures that the restaurant should take. But we also had to land messages with customers that not only were we still open, but our restaurants were still open and it was safe to order food to be delivered. And it was just a balance of understanding the sort of the tone of communication to land, how to nuance that. And really the sort of stages of communication we went through. I think Lisa's absolutely absolutely right to say that it, it was a really real, a really big challenge to sort of understand at what point to communicate and what to communicate. And and also that the first answer wasn't necessarily the right answer. It kept evolving over time and continues to evolve now. Great. Thank you. Raoul Shah. Pick up on both the points. The listening point's important. Um, critically and so too is appropriateness of what you say and how you respond. I think from our side being, you know, on the agency side, so talking to multiple clients, all of whom are going through their version of what we all went through, you know, from, you know, crisis hits, survival mode kicks in in many instances, and suddenly everyone also looks around and sees everyone doing their own kind of interpreted version of what they think is right because it was sort of you know we were learning on the job all of us all the way through I mean it was really important to um, you know have a sort of measured view on what needed to be done for brands to kind of continue to be present but more importantly how can they be useful being honest and, and kind of showing your yourself as you are and having that dialogue with, with your consumers where, you know, you realise that there's, there's going to be a lot more to be gained by genuinely showing that we can, you know, A, perhaps solve a crisis or navigate a crisis together. But we can only do it by kind of being, you know, listening to each other and being, you know, honest and, and transparent about how we're going to do it. And Alex Weller. Yeah, I, I think that's such a good point. And, and I think one of the most fascinating things for all of us, I'm sure, during this time is that there was, um, you know, the, uh, Fundamentally, the, the, that moment in time was a, a, a very human moment. 
where I think we were probably forced to look at our work, not as, you know, how do we keep up the pace and how do we keep up the revenue and how do we keep up the brand strength, but what's happening in the lives of our customer communities, probably pretty similar to what's happening in our own personal lives. You know, for most of the communities that we serve, their lives are driven by outdoor sport and environmental activism, and that had ground to a halt very quickly. Um, and, you know, how in that moment could we show up for them? How best in that moment could we show up? Um, hopefully offer some inspiration and, and some tools, um, be useful. Um, and some of that meant pulling on things that we already had in place, great film content, great story, ambassadors and people that we worked with. And then slowly but surely, of course, it starts to form up into more of a, of a consistent behavior. But it was very human um, and very real time. And we learned a huge amount, a huge amount from those, 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 those early, early weeks and months. Yeah, no doubt. Well, thank you all for that. That's really interesting. Um, I'd like to talk about a couple of specific things now. I'd like to talk about kind of um, platforms and targeting, really. I mean, did you find at the start and as things went on, there were any sort of particular um, patterns around how you were targeting traditional media, social media, use of influencers and, and so on? Uh, Alex or, or, or Raoul, what were your experiences of that? There was a huge rush towards this kind of notion that everyone thought there were loads of very influential, famous people sitting at home with nothing to do. And actually, to some degree, there might have been, but we were all sitting at home trying to figure out what to do. It was suddenly, you know, whether you, you know, you're, you're a drummer in a band or you've got, you know, billions of followers on Instagram, it didn't really matter because everything, the, the playing field was flat and level. And I think what we found is that we had some clients who suddenly, you know, were sort of pressuring us to say, oh, but so-and-so must be sitting at home. Give them a call. I'm sure they're interested in doing something because no one else is paying them. Unfortunately, it's just a sort of bad behavior. And we sort of were fairly uh, resolute, I guess, about saying this isn't the time to kind of think people can be, you know, taken advantage of. It's actually better to figure out where the partnership is rewritten you know how do you find new ways to use your channel just trying to make everything we put out there um, valuable you know provide something that somebody might take away and use for better value rather than just noise because there was so much noise yeah i think as a brand it was to understand the balance of um when to be a public information channel and when to actually start to play play the role of the brand and, and at what point that that became relevant and useful I think the, the comments around being human and authentic was so important and so as a result our media mix changed quite dramatically I mean clearly um, if people aren't on public transport then then sort of out of home media and not on roads in the first days of lockdown obviously your media mix changes anyway but I think for us it was as much around changing mix as, as it was around tone and obviously the big, the big moment for us or the big decision that, that our marketing, global marketing team had to make was when to launch our big brand campaign, which had been planned, which was obviously uh, the campaign featuring Snoop Dogg. And at what point was it right to go out with that message, which was obviously a very different message to, to the public information message that sort of that was within the early days of lockdown. So once the decision was then made much, for, much further on, sort of in May time, but actually now was the right time and that people wanted to have a bit more sort of lightness in their lives again then actually the, the the mix changed but I think what was so important for all brands was to understand the role we played and how to communicate and then the mix to use to communicate through that 
Yeah. And I think for us, I mean, our media, I mean, for any of those that are tuning into this, this talk right now, I mean, how many of us, the, our media was challenged really by budgets, right? You protect your people, you protect the communities you serve, um, and you, and you protect your business. And so a lot of that impacted how we, how we went out and communicated, um, I would say in the very early days, our friends in public relations and our strategy and insights team, like not only are they great partners throughout the year, but they really stepped up and stepped in kind of PR and our, our strategy and insights team kind of became the temperature check on what was going on. Because let's remember also during this period, we had Black Lives Matter, Stop Hate for Profit. I mean, it was just, it was relentless. So you always had to be listening or you would have been out there with a message that was completely inappropriate. You know, in America right now, we're finding it still continues that, you know, we're out with a program around the US Open and then things may flare up and then you've got to pull back your messaging. So you really have to be fluid and you have to be okay with that. Where the magic really happened was when everybody was able to break out of their silos. So when, um, you know, for us, we did things in two months that would have taken two years. You know, our, our whole prior to COVID buying buying spirits, buying alcohol online really wasn't common. You could buy your makeup, you could buy clothes, but to buy a cocktail online wasn't a common practice. So, you know, this has dramatically shifted our business and, and likely won't go back. But I think it was what happened was we made what traditionally would have been a straightforward commercial exchange with an online partner to better, stronger, more well-rounded 360 programs where we connected influencers with traditional media, with social, with e-com, all those things coming together created something more powerful than everything acting independently. And that was a, a really nice thing, seeing everybody coming together to make, um, to make everything work harder for you. It's really good to hear. No, thank you for that. I'd quite like to talk about um, client agency relationships, really, and how those evolved during the period. Obviously, we've got um, three client side people here and one representative of, of, of agency lands. So, um, yeah, who'd like to jump in on uh, client agency relations? Alex Weller. I'll have a go at taking it first. I think not least because I might be quickest. We don't work with a huge amount of agencies um, in creative development, but we do have a lot of vendor partners that are you know, a critical part of, of what we do. It might be physically making stuff, um, certainly with regards to our retail stores and our wholesale partners and getting creative work out into those spaces. Um, and in the early days, you know, across, uh, across Europe, we found our network of agencies to be just incredibly useful in understanding the situation on the ground. I would say, you know, beyond that, the, the, the biggest uh, kind of impact, if you like, or acceleration, of course, was digital. And having to um, lean on our existing partners and to a certain extent find new partners to help us understand, um, understand new challenges. Of course, that began with COVID. And it was absolutely accelerated for us, at least with um, uh, with, the, with the Facebook boycott that we have uh, and continue to participate in. And so in that space specifically, the, um, uh, we have developed more partnerships and expanded the scope of, of, of digital creativity and, and digital strategy with agencies. Interesting. Thank you for that. Um, anyone else like to talk about how client agency relationships have, uh, have evolved? 
Yeah, I, I, I don't think they've necessarily evolved. I think we've always been a proponent that agencies are an extended part of our marketing team. Time like this, we're all in this together because we're all living it and breathing it. This isn't something that's going on elsewhere. We are all living it and breathing it. And so, but also being very mindful that like us, they're working from home, they're working remotely um, and the challenges that that brings um, in terms of in terms of sort of the new normal, as it were. So I think it was about tapping into them as a as, as, as part of the broader team. And then I think, like Lisa said, actually, what it's also done is opened up lots of opportunity in terms of pivoting um, around things like product propositions. So we have a B2B food delivery business called City Pantry, uh, which I head up. And obviously, when everyone starts working from home, your B2B business disappears overnight. So one of the things we were able to do was to launch an at-home proposition to actually launch direct-to-consumer um, things like curated packages. So. I think for me, it was just it's it's just really a really important signal of, of how to work with agencies going forward. Sorry, a total sidebar. I feel Ben, you and I have a lot of work to do going forward. We have some good partnerships probably uh, ready to be ready to be had between us. <laughs> you heard um, it here first. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll just, you know, from an agency, like, again, like, you know, I, I think Ben said it well, that we have to appreciate those changes that are going on on both, on both sides. I don't believe there has been an impact on creativity, though. Um, I, I think there has been some wonderful creativity that's come out of COVID. And um, I mean, I, you know, we shot an ad under lockdown in New York City with a crew sitting in a truck at street level and then three roommates, uh, you know, up in their flat and they, they were being directed on headsets. They had to set up their own props, you know, and this came from the agency without us asking for it. There was some really smart, clever work that you saw from lots of companies and, and lots of brands. I think the one thing, and Raul and I talked about this a little bit the other day, was kind of this destabilizing of, a, of the hierarchy, um, which I think has happened probably on client side, but on agency side too, that you know, I think if we all go away knowing that an idea can come from anywhere mm. and from anybody, think that hierarchy or how teams have been put together, that'll be something to look at um, as we move forward and something that might change. Brilliant. Would anyone else like to reflect on creativity, actually? It's something I'm, um, I'm, I've been very, very interested to track how that's, how that's evolved. And I agree with Lisa personally, that I think there's been some, some really good creativity. But anyone else got any thoughts on that? Or Raoul, have you got any um, uh, particular thoughts on this? The key for us as an agency has been about um, specialism, actually. I think the better we've been at understanding what we are best at has allowed us to be better agency partners for our clients. So I said very early on with Tim, my business partner, at one of the first town halls, I said, if there's only one thing I think we should do, I think this might, you know, assuming that for most people lockdown started on March the 23rd, I think the first week in, I said to everyone, the one thing you've got to do is stay in your lane. Do not, this is not the time to become completely kind of promiscuous and think you can do everything because everyone keeps calling you asking for help because no one has any answers so it's better to sort of say I don't know what I do know is x and I think what that led to to to, to come to, um, to your point John is actually the creativity and the output imp didn't improve but it benefited I think we were much much better at going apart from being resourceful quick agile and all the things we had to be what's going to make a genuinely good idea you know, how we work with VCCP, for example, and the take that concept for online for um, Compare the Market. Um, you know, we worked with BrewDog on pivoting their 100 
pubs into virtual pubs and, and a whole series of activations through uh, the last six months with them and a bunch of other things you know with Levi's and, and all sorts of brands and this was not driven by you know six months of thinking and huge budgets it was about great ideas it can cut through and clearly cut through in the channels that were available. I do believe in my heart of hearts I mean if anything out of COVID we have all realized the benefit and the um the, the benefit of what happens when you come together in real life and the need to be with other people. So I don't think it's going away, but there has been some really interesting innovation there and it, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. And we're back. Thanks to John and the panel from Media360. And remember, you can go to campaign360.co.uk to see all the content on there. And um, hopefully next year, we'll be able to back at Brighton where we can have our annual fiesta of marketing, media and advertising. Uh, I, I do. I have missed it this year. Um, let's, before we go, Jez, let's talk about some ads. Uh, one thing I, I really wanted to uh to um chat about is um asda it's the return to that asda price um which um ostensibly has a family where you've got a dad kind of like talking to the camera and you know he's he's kind of it's all very meta he's trying to create his own asda ad let's have a quick clip hello asda this is the advert you should be making go Action. just making an advert christine sorry in it sunny it's time to bring asda price Back to the people. Uh, thoughts on this, Jez? Did, did it inspire you to to go in to be, create an ad yourself? I don't know. It didn't. Uh, but I think the, this would have been better if it actually genuinely been created by amateurs rather than have an ad agency involved. It's so clumsy. It's so <laughs> clunky. I mean, uh, the, the fact that I, I, I just found absolutely staggering that this ad was made. I mean, I guess I understand that the, this ad and actually the other two we're going to look at are all sort of COVID era ads, but. Um, they just lack any empathy, and uh, you know the the, the 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 fact they had to PR around. Oh, we brought back the the bottom tap, which was scrapped you know, fourteen years ago, and we brought back a new logo. Well, that's fine, but this piece of film is absolutely dreadful. What did you think? <laughs> I don't know why I, I, I'm the one who's always defending things. I, I actually quite liked it when I saw it on TV. I saw it on TV before I, I saw it on our website. Um, I, <laughs> I, th I thought it was. It had a weird charm to it, and it was. I th maybe I'm doing. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it was kind of intentionally being a little bit crap, and that being kind of the charm of it. And I thought, yeah, but I, I agree. I think things that are a little bit crap can be charming, but that's if they're authentically real people. Uh, authentically real people. This isn't. This is a bloke pretending to be a real. It's just. It's just too contrived. Is they not a real family? It doesn't look like it's me. Uh, I don't know, perhaps it is, but there's the acting in it. I mean, it's clearly been scripted in some format and it just doesn't work. Uh, well, um, well, we'll confirm that in the show notes or maybe we'll just slip in a, a quick bit of magic just to confirm that. Whether, whether this man is really, whether it's really his family or um, he's abducted them to create an ad, we don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, one thing we can definitely look forward to is the new series of uh, the Great British Bake Off. Uh, we have um, The Gift uh, that Full Creative always do um, an interesting ad to kind of launch Bake Off. Uh, this is called The Gift uh, to promote the new series. Uh, it's quick, it's playful, shows people attempting to secure a bag of flour, which uh, was, as we all know, is in shortage during lockdown. 
I'm all out. You got any? I wish. Come on, man, please. How many times? No. Jeremy, did this inspire you? Do you watch Bake Off and does it inspire you for the new season? I don't watch Bake Off. I'm probably in the wrong demographic. I looked at the um, the statistics. Very popular amongst young people, so I'm sure Mark Reed doesn't watch it either. Um, but I, I actually quite like this. It's got a charm to it. It's got, you know, it's that homage to Ridley Scott's 1973 Hobbit spot. And I just think it shows how far we've progressed that now we're actually laughing at the scarcity of flour, whereas before we'd have been sort of pushing pensioners over in order to secure the last bag in the supermarket. So I just think it's it's got it's got a warmth to it, and I like it. How about you? Uh, it's a good point about the flower. He says, surrounded by toilet paper in case the next lockdown happens. Uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, Bake Off's fine. I mean, my missus loves it. Um, it's, it, it feels like it's not for me. So I feel like I shouldn't comment. It just, you know, it, it looks fine, but it feels like you really have to connect with the show. And it's, it's such an evolved brand now that I kind of feel like it's just an awareness ad rather than trying to persuade anyone that didn't already like it to watch it. And I think that's just where it's at. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. It won't, it won't encourage me to watch it, but I, I didn't mind watching the, the advert, to be honest with you. Last one. And this is, this is a very knowing ad. It's by BT. It's by such and such. It's called Don't Be a Pixelated Paula. It's all about a woman named Paula as she tries to meander her way through a web meeting with a crap internet connection. This is Paula, or as her colleague Stuart has taken to calling her, Pixelated Paula. Paula was flying high a few months ago, destined for corporate glory. And then this happened. Signal shamed one call at a time. Jez, as, as someone I know you're very sensitive about your, your internet connection, do you, do you feel discriminated against during meetings that, at risk of video freezes? I, I do, and I think that's, that's one of the problems is that it plays off fear. This poor woman is stuck home with a terrible, be- uh, sorry, a terrible internet, internet connection because she's not with BT apparently. And she might not get promoted and an intern might or Stuart might. And she's, this woman is fearful for her career. I mean, it just plays on that negativity. I think, I think it's really, really horrible ad. And the fact it uses um, True by Spandau Ballet in the background, I think I just, it just, none of it makes sense to me. None of it makes sense. I, I, I'm not a fan. Um, how about you? Perhaps I'm being too, too cruel on it, but poor pixelated Paula. Yeah, you, you've got your knives out uh, today, ben. I have to say. <laughs> the, um, I, should, I should hand out your email address just um, so people can uh, <laughs> give you their right to reply. Uh, what did I think? I think I think it's incredible. We, we've talked about this on the show before. It's in, I think this lockdown is probably the biggest creative challenge this industry has faced maybe you know in my my 36 year lifetime it's so difficult when you have such a radical shift in behavior all these issues and with the production challenges and people kind of not going out and all these things come together i just i think it's really difficult um do i like this ad not really i think to your point i think it's a little i think it's quite sinister and I think, you know, it's, it's blunt, isn't it? It's far too blunt. And, and I think, you know, I think you may have been off when some some of the COVID ads were made by agencies when restrictions were even worse. And they were much more creative than this, which is just a, a really blunt tool to sort of frighten people and change their broadband supply. And we can do better than this, surely. Well, you know, that um, we're, we're in the, you know, they're in the business of um, selling baked beans and Mars bars and, and cars, you know, that you know um you can only go so far in trying to kind of be empathetic and culture and try to inspire people at the end of the day you know 
you've got sales volumes and you know it's people you know it's people's jobs on the line so um it's it's not any yeah paula's jobs on the line poor poor old paula poor paula yeah and we're meant to be laughing at her poor woman um poor poor paula right um enough of that that's <laughs> that's all that that's all the time we have for this week on the campaign podcast uh jeremy what what does the next few days hold for you what are you going to be doing i'm i'm going to be doing lots of media 360 stuff I've, I've been doing two panels today which if i seem a bit um energetic that's why but what are you up to i think i'll be um oh yeah but you, you've done right I'll, I'll be editing more premium content for your delectation next month Oh, we, we don't want any unpremium content, do we? Don't oh, exactly. Crap, do we? <laughs> Sub-premium content. I'm not in that business anymore, man. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Campaign Podcast. Thank you so much to our producer, Ben Lonsborough. Thank you so much to Jeremy Lee, premium content editor, for joining me. And to our panellists at Media360. And remember, be sure to subscribe on your favourite podcast player wherever you get your podcasts. Bye-bye.